or three, or four, but five, force five. Welcome to the Force Five Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed five list, and then we discuss our picks for those lists on air. I'm your host, Kleberg, and today my guest is actor, writer, director, Jed Bryan, who is best known for 2013's Unlisted Owner. He also co-wrote the recently released horror short Lost in the Woods, which you can find right now on YouTube, and has a few upcoming projects in post right now, including the upcoming Christmas horror anthology, 13 Slays Till Christmas. How's it going, Jed? Doing great. After some technical difficulties, I'm doing good now. <laughs> <laughs> Technology, it is just the best. Yes, it is. Tell us a little bit about you uh, before we get uh, kicked into what you picked for your list here. Well, as you had mentioned, I'm a writer, director, and actor of uh, I got my start in 2008 in actually making uh, or actually filming stuff. Uh, I wrote a teaser trailer for a horror short or well, horror feature that I'd like to get made called Meth House, but uh, we just didn't have the funding. So I got started there and then we did a GoDaddy commercial contest and we got eighth out of like 539 videos. And then from there, we jumped right into uh, Unlisted Owner making my first feature film. What are your influences? Like, you know, obviously it seems like you're pretty horror centric. So what are those in influences that have kind of that you've grown up with? Well, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved like horror. I've loved Halloween. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents had got me House on Haunted Hill on VHS. And then uh, I'd also watched uh, The Legend. Of, well, it was The Adventures of Ichabod Crane, the uh, Disney cartoon with uh, Bing Crosby. I, I was obsessed with that as a kid. King Kong versus Godzilla. And I mean, growing up in the 90s, I mean, there was a lot of horror themed, you know, cartoons or just entertainment in general. So I felt really lucky to grow up in that time period. But it wasn't until I saw Eli Ross Hostel for the first time that I really opened my eyes about like real life horror. Like it doesn't have to be like a Freddy Krueger or a Jason. It can be actual real people in real possible situations. So it really got me thinking about my own fears, which peer pressure is a major fear of mine whenever, especially when I was younger, being peer pressured into doing things I didn't want to do. So uh, it just kind of gave me the, uh, the motivation to try to put this into script form of my own fears and, and hope that other people could relate to the situations. And then in terms of your favorite movies, what would you say some of your favorite flicks are? My all-time favorite film, which will come as probably a surprise to most people, uh, is Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, uh, 1925. It's a silent film. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but it is like really the first true mainstream like horror, really horror film that uh, came out, especially with crazy makeup effects. He had done the Hunch Hunchback of Notre Dame previous, but to me, Phantom was the one that kind of, you know, helped influence all these different horror films you see today. And that's definitely my number one. And then I would say probably Hostel is definitely on the list because that was the one that really gave me my inspiration to make films. And then I'm a big history buff and I, I love Saving Private Ryan. And then uh, the Civil War film Gettysburg, I grew up watching as a kid. And it's, you know, just films like that have really kind of helped influence me as far as like making films. I've watched them so many times and I've learned like how they uh, do things in them that that's really kind of helped 
guide me on the path to making my own films. It's it's not really a surprise for me that Phantom of the Opera was your favorite film because your list that you forced us to come up with today is five classic horror villains. Um, so we're going to be looking at pre-60s horror, so 1959 and earlier. This was a list that was really tough for me because my my pre-60s movie lineage really is kind of Hitchcock. Uh-huh. I had to go back. I had to really go back to my Turner Classic Movies days when I was growing up. I don't know if you were familiar with the Turner Classic Movies channel. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's where I saw a lot of my first James Bond films. And I did see a lot of old school horror on there and, you know, the boom of the 30s and 40s. And I came up with a solid list, though. I think this is going to be really educational for podcast listeners who may be younger folks and into horror movies that are newer, like your paranormal activities and your um, conjuring. You know, this is where all that stuff started. So we're going to kind of take you back and hopefully you'll get some good stuff to watch out of it. Yeah, for sure. Whenever you had asked me about making a, a unique list, I figured that probably no one had came up with a list like this. So I'm I'm really excited to hear what your picks are. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I think I got some that will also be a bit of a surprise for you, too. Awesome. Before we get into that, though, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. So um, I'm going to go ahead and start us off. I watched two very strange movies this week. Uh, the first is from 1984. It's a little film called Ninja Buster. Meet Bernie and Chick, two of Bruce Lee's original students. They're a couple of average guys. They like goofing around on the job. They like girls. And pizza. And girls. How come all the girls are so mean? I'm not doing any better than you. They're wanted by every gangster in town. Stop right there. What do you think you're doing? Wait a minute, what did you say? About Santos being a gangster. And an army of ninja. Well, with an army like this, no one would dare oppose me. They'd have to be idiots. You ever heard of this one? I've heard of Robot Ninja, but never Ninja Busters. <laughs> Well, it's not a surprise that you haven't heard of Ninja Busters because the story behind it is actually kind of funny. It was directed by a guy named Paul Kairazi. He's most well known for kind of early 80s B movies like um, Death Machines and Omega Cop. If you remember seeing those covers in like blockbusters. Oh, yeah. And he made this film called Ninja Busters in 1984. It was screened one time. And then it was put into a warehouse and it was forgotten about this print. This is the only print that ever existed. It was forgotten about in this warehouse for 30 years. And then somebody found it and gave it to uh, Studio Garage House Pictures and they remastered it and put it out on Blu-ray. So this is like the first wide release it's ever had. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a cool story. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't really live up to how I had hyped it up in my head. It's really more of a goofy comedy. And in those in those 80s ninja flicks, I want to see a lot of heads getting kicked in. I want to see some violence. I want to see some blood. And this has no blood at all. Wow. Yeah. And, and the first 45 minutes to an hour is really just these two people that it focuses on named Bernie and Chick. All they want to do is get with the ladies and they keep striking out. One guy's pitch is that he taught Bruce Lee everything he knows. And the other guy's pitch is that he taught Bruce Lee how to act. (laughs) 
it doesn't go well for them. And so one day they're walking home after they get their butts kicked at work and they decide they're going to join this karate dojo. Not so much because they want to learn karate, but because there's a class full of women in there. And then it just kind of devolves from there. It's got all your kind of 80s tropes for B movies. It's got really bad acting, really wooden line readings. It's even got your breakdancing scene out of nowhere. So yeah, it's not one that I would recommend that you seek out. But if you can find it cheap, uh, if you can find the Blu-ray cheap, might be worth uh, worth a laugh or two. It, it just at two hours or an hour and a half just still kind of drags. I was a little bored with it. Yeah, it's always unfortunate whenever you finally get to see a movie that you've been wanting to see for years and then you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of a letdown. Now, I will say this. I will say this for Garage House Pictures. The picture on it looks great and the presentation is really top notch. They also have uh, a short film from the same director on the disc. So it is a packed disc and it looks great. They did a good job with it. The content just wasn't for me, but. If this sounds like something up your alley, seek that out. That's Ninja Busters from 1984. What's something that you've been watching? I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you my 80s film. I watched, uh, let's see, a couple nights ago, my niece and nephew had stayed the night at, at me and my wife's house. And uh, my nephew loves Star Wars, is obsessed with Star Wars. And I told him, I have a film that I grew up watching as a kid, and it took me years to figure out the name of it. And when I finally did, I bought it on DVD. And I said, it's like Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings. And you want to check it out? He goes, yeah. And the name of that movie, I believe it's pronounced Krill. On a distant planet, a great kingdom was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe. Now, the only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king. They will hold her in the Black Fortress. You must have help. Thieves, bandits, fighters and brawlers. Desperate men. Those are the kind of men I need. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. At the end of an impossible journey, they must fight an invincible enemy. Here's the knowledge you seek. I shall be your king. In the fortress, you will face more than the slayers. What is about to happen to them could never have happened on Earth. Thor of the Rings, plus, you know, these space aliens that shoot lasers like Star Wars. Rick and Morty actually had a reference to him, I think, in last season. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's the Slayers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for those of you who have never heard of, of Krill or Krull, it's, it's spelled K-R-U-L-L. But Liam Neeson's first movie, which is wild, but uh, has a Cyclops in it that has like kind of like weird. Like, you can tell the makeup like it has like he has like go a, it's like goggles on it, and then the eye in the middle actually blinks. But it's about these like space invader creature things that crash on this planet and they start invading this planet and uh these two clans uh the, the main hero which i can't think of his name and 
uh, this other woman, they were like the, like the prince and princess of these two clans that were rivals. And then they united them. Well, the slayers come in, kidnap her on the wedding day and kill everyone except for him. So then he has to go on a quest to try and rescue her. And it is like full of like weird, quirky things. A whole big thing happens in quicksand. There's these things called changelings that can look like people. It's just, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I watched that and then uh, I've been really trying to do a deep dive into classic films that I've never seen, not necessarily horror, just classic films in general. Like I've been watching a bunch of James Cagney films. Like I've watched uh, Man of a Thousand Faces. I've watched uh, Taxi, The Roaring Twenties. And I've been watching a lot of Peter Lorre films. So I've, I've been kind of on a classic kick here lately. Nice. Yeah, we may see some uh, Peter Lorre pop up on my list here in a little bit. All right. I'm excited. So I want to go back real quick to Kroll, which um, is one of my childhood favorites, too. There was like this boom in the 80s of really cool space slash fantasy movies like Conan and Dark Crystal and Willow. And this one is right up there at the top of that list. It's a bonkers movie, but it is a really good time. Oh, yeah. It's you, you like my nephew. You know, we watched it and he was kind of like he's he's still never seen Lord of the Rings. He's only 10. So he's never seen Lord of the Rings. And he just kind of looked at me like. This is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. Are, I mean, you already mentioned the Cyclops, which is really cool. And then. The guy has his name is Prince Colwyn, I think it was his name. Yeah, and he has this uh, boomerang thing, and it's covered in knives. It looks like Xena. Like I was gonna say, it also has a little bit of Xena Warrior Princess because she always had that thing she threw. Except this has knives on it. Yeah, oh, it's super cool. Um, Crawl so good. I've been watching one other thing that I want to mention, also from the '80s. So we're we're going back in time for this episode, just in full. This is more of an exploitation movie. It's from 1982. It's a film called Turkey Shoot. Tomorrow you can walk out through that gate and never come back. You'll be legal. All you have to do is lead my guests on a chase for one day. A little sport. A little hunt. It's a totalitarian future where deviants are held in rehabilitation camps. So if you go against the government, you get shipped to these camps and they rehabilitate you, basically keep you in the camp and torture you until you're on the government's side. There are a couple that get put into this camp and decide they've had enough and they're going to try and get out of this camp. It was also known as Escape 2000. It's an Australian film. The first half is really kind of fun. It feels like a running man esque movie where uh, they, they're even kind of wearing the suits that they wore in Running Man. So I think that it's easy to say that Running Man probably had some inspiration from Turkey Shoot. And then the back half of the movie, once they they take the the problem prisoners and they have these rich people come in, kind of like a surviving the game type of feel. And they say, you know, what? you get to pick one prisoner each that you want to hunt. And they let the prisoners out with a three-hour head start or less for some of the prisoners. And then they go and they they try to get them. And it is bananas in the second half. We've got heads that get exploded. We've got arms that get chopped off. You each have 
a participant with a very specific weapon, and one of the participants has a live werewolf guy with him. It's <laughs> it's insane. It's bonkers. That's it goes awesome. from like semi-realistic to all of a sudden you have this circus freak in there, and it's crazy. A great disc from uh, Severin on this. Severin put out the disc. It's loaded with features. Again, looks fantastic. That's Turkey Shoot from 1982. If you're looking for like some exploitation on the run movie, like a surviving the game, this is a, this is a good time. It was way better than Ninja Busters. That's awesome. I'll have to add that to my list. I did, since you were talking about 80s though, I did think of one other that I watched and my, actually I watched it with my son and my nephew. I showed him parts of it, but uh, and this is another one I saw as a kid and my mom had just popped. It was on TV and I loved it. And my mom happened to see it again on TV, but she didn't have a chance to record it on a, a VHS until it was like about 50% through. But uh, on the VHS, it always said Jesse and the mummy. And when I got older and I wanted to see the whole film, I Googled Jesse and the mummy. I'm like, there's no film named Jesse and the mummy, but it ended up being house Two: the second story. Last year, audiences everywhere thrilled to a terrifying film about the horrors of home ownership. House. Now, there's an all-new house. Looks like you got some kind of alternate universe in there or something. With brand new owners. Charlie. Huh? We got it. And it's getting weirder. Look! It's a prehistoric bird! I've seen enough tragedy and disaster to make you want to upchuck in your shorts. Two friends inherit a fantastic house. Charlie, there's a jungle in there. And a 170-year-old mummy. Surprise! Who is this? You can call me Gramps. Now, they're in for more trouble <laughs> than they ever imagined. You're gonna kick the door open, run in there blindly, and I'll cover you, okay? <clears throat> Guy with the big gun goes first. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I grew up with that. I, I mean, I love that movie so much. And uh, I was able to show it to my nephew and my, my my son. You know, he doesn't really comprehend. He just goes, ghost, ghost. <laughs> but but uh, for those of you out there who may not be familiar with House 2, the second story, it's a it's a crazy film goes 20 different directions, but it basically revolves around this, uh, this guy who inherits a house that's been in his family for generations and, uh, is kind of consumed by this legend of this crystal skull and ends up digging up his great, great grandfather, who's named Jesse and, uh, ends up this skull is like supposed to be like some big powerful thing that's passed on from generation to generation or went through like, I don't know, all kinds of different stuff, but whenever they get the skull, it unlocks all these different worlds and all these different people are trying to steal the skull. You got like a barbarian guy, you got these Aztec people that are sacrificing a virgin and John Rathenberger comes in to do electrical work. And <laughs> I mean, it's just all over the place, pterodactyls and, and, you know, it's just, you know, a fantastic film for anyone out there who loves like, 80s horror i mean it's just a amazing film i don't feel like it gets enough recognition and it's not even really straight up horror it's a lot of really funny stuff and i think it could be even just considered straight up horror comedy in these oh yeah for sure yeah that i mean and 
it, it's kind of funny. Like uh, I, I'm on a movie prop Facebook page and uh, I've always was kind of curious, you know, because I see people post like, you know, small soldiers props and stuff like that. And I posted that skull on there and I'm like, does anyone know whatever happened to the, the skull? And someone commented on there and said, Unfortunately, this was the better of the two Crystal Skull movies referring to Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you want to seek out the second one, too, it's been a long time since I've seen them, but I don't think that the second one has, has anything to do with the first one. So you can no. watch the second one oh, and yeah. still get everything out of it that you need to. Yeah, I never saw the first one until like years later. And I was like, you know, it's a different house, different. I mean, it, it doesn't even, you know there's nothing in the stories that they share besides I think maybe the uh, director or writer. Go seek that out. That's house two, probably around 1986, 1987, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I would say. And I think Krill was from like 83, I think, or something like that. Well, there's some things on your plate to watch from the eighties, but we're going to get to some things that you need to watch from pre 1960. It's time to get to our Force 5 list. This is pre-1960 horror villains. So you talked a little bit about your Phantom of the Opera pick. Did you grow up watching some of these more classic movies or were these movies that you went to seek out once you started getting more uh, familiar with movies? It's a little bit of both. Like when I grew up, I grew up with House on Haunted Hill and uh, some other classic horror films but it wasn't until I got older that, I mean, you know, as a, you know, especially back in the nineties to mid two thousands before the internet was, you know, the way it is now, I mean, you would, you know, you just have to happen to find something to be able to watch it. And that was like a super pain unless you went and rented a film at your local, you know, uh, blockbuster, which the area that I grew up in, there's (laughs) there, you know, you had to drive an hour and a half to get to a blockbuster. It was all like mom and pop video rental stores, but you know, it, it was, you know, you were limited to what you could get, but it really wasn't until I got older that I started seeking out some of these films that I had heard about and, uh, you know, saw previews of on VHSs and stuff. So uh, I would definitely say probably more so as I got older. Yeah, mine were all, well, I was older. I would say probably eighth grade on is when I started catching movies on uh, on TCM. That's the majority of my old school horror watching was on those after school days before my mom got home and I was able to just consume what was on the Turner Classic Movies. There you go. Well, let's kick it off with uh, with your number five. So number five on your list of pre-1960s horror villains. What do you got? Well, mine is the, since we cut it off in 1960, it's 1960 Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Can you have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place that looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? 
acting as if there's something wrong? She's not missing so much as she's run away. Put me down! Mother! Oh, God! Mother! What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a... a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. You can't go wrong with Norman Bates. It's from the movie Psycho. To me, Psycho was one of those films. I didn't get to see it until later on. And when I watched it, I was just completely like blown away by the whole twist at the end because you had to take into consideration the time that this was shot and having someone dress up as a woman and try to embody his, you know, spoilers, uh, embody his mother while trying to, you know, kill people. It's just, you know, just blows my mind. I mean, you know, it was a movie where they killed off the main character, like within the first, you know, 15 minutes of the film or whatever. So it's, you know, it's such a, a great film. And Norman Bates is like character, especially at that end sequence where he's sitting there and that fly is landing on him. And he's like, I'm going to show them that I can't even hurt a fly. Him as a villain was just, you know, he did an amazing job playing that part. You see their influence in movies even today. This is one of the movies that is one of those rare movies that has a remake that's shot for shot. Yes, with Vince Vaughn. Did you ever see the uh, <laughs> the sequel, Psycho 2? Yeah, I actually, um, it's kind of funny you say that. The, the reason I, I sought it out was um, I had saw on a horror site that you could write to Vera Miles and she would, you know, she doesn't do in-person signings, but if you wrote to her like fan mail and sent like a, a, a picture or a DVD cover that she would sign it and send it back to you. So I uh, went online and, and got a um, found her address and I wrote her a note and told her I was an indie filmmaker and stuff. And I sent it out there. And uh, while I was IMDB in her, I saw that she was the main star in psycho too. So I, whenever she wrote me back and she actually wrote me a letter and told me to keep making good films. I was like, that was, you know, it was so it was like the coolest note I ever got from anybody. And, uh, but it made me want to watch Psycho too. So I went and checked it out. I didn't think it was bad. I, I was expecting the second one to be a lot worse. Yeah, I, I feel like it doesn't get as much praise as what it deserves. I mean, I think Vera did an amazing job in that film. Yeah, I think if you if you had called it something other than Psycho 2, it would have been a lot, a lot better received. Yeah. Well, going to number five on my list, I guess you started with 1960. So I'm going to I'm going to go to one from 1959. And this is a movie called The Tingler. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, Members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction 
how you can guard yourself from attack by the tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the tingler? Good choice. I'm going to kind of make this two villains because you've got the main villain. Uh, his name is Oliver Higgins, played by Philip Coolidge. And the Tingler is kind of a separate villain. So the story in the Tingler is that every one of us has this small parasite that's in our spine. And when we start to get scared and we feel those tingles through our body, this Tingler grows. And unless we scream, it's going to feed on our fear. It essentially curls up in our spine. And unless you scream and let that tension out, it's going to kill you. And this guy, Oliver Higgins, he runs a movie theater. And in this theater, he's also married to somebody who is mute. And so she can't scream. So she's sitting in this theater and he plays her a scary movie. And he has this, you know, everybody has this tingler inside of them. And he kills her by scaring her because she can't scream. And this is a a really cool idea for a movie just because the way it played out in 1959, it was kind of an audience interactive movie. They would have these buzzers under certain seats and they would kind of, it was like a film within a film near the climax of the Tingler. They had an audience in a theater as well. So you're in the theater, you're watching this movie which is taking place in a theater and all of a sudden the tingler gets loose in in the theater in the movie and then buzzers on seats start going off so if you are in a seat with one of these buzzers you think that the tingler is near you and it it just seems like it would have been such a crazy experience to have that happen in 1959 oh yeah i mean william castle is crazy i mean some of the stunts that he did on his films Yeah, he was kind of infamous for that stuff. Uh, You mentioned House on Haunted Hill. I know that in certain theaters he had like uh, ghosts or skeletons or something like that flying. Yeah, and 13 Ghosts he did. He had like those glasses that if you put the glasses on, you'd see the different ghosts. And probably my favorite (laughs) William Castle film besides House on Haunted Hill is called Straight Jacket. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but uh, Joan Crawford. I've not seen that one. Amazing film crazy just you would not see the ending coming highly recommend it it stars Joan Crawford in it and she is completely like acts insane in that movie which you know if you watch Mommy Dearest it kind of you know makes sense of why she played the part so well but definitely <laughs> seek that film out it's a must-see for anybody who's uh, who, I mean you don't even have to like classic horror to watch this this film but it's amazing I will put that on the list you know the tingler now it's it's a bit of a different experience it's it's really campy and you don't get that experience that you would have had in the theaters in 59. But it's still, I think it's still an interesting idea. And um, I, I still really like it. So that's, yeah, that's Oliver Higgins slash The Tingler from 1959. That was my number five. Number four, I have to go with Dracula, Bela Lugosi. <laughs> I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula, 
The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Classic. 1930, yeah, 1931. And to me, you know, Lon Chaney was, originally they were grooming him to play Dracula, but he got throat cancer and passed on. So they ended up picking Lugosi, who was doing the stage version of Dracula. And as sinister as he is, as bloodthirsty as he is, I mean, he's just a creepy, you know, villain. Those eyes, it's just, you know, Dracula is such an amazing film. And Lugosi did such a great job with that part. I mean, anytime anyone imitates a vampire period, it's the Hungarian accent. So it's, you know, it's, it's fabulous. But yeah, uh, for sure, Dracula, number four, 1931. If you're into horror movies and you've never seen Dracula, shame on you. This shame. is like, this is where you should be starting, the, the universal classic horror monsters. And Lugosi is obviously one of those masters of early horror too so always good to check that out my number four is from 1935 from a movie called mad love yeah this is peter Laurie speaking i couldn't resist the temptation to call you i just read of your new picture that you're to make oh that's very nice of you thanks for your interest oh i thought you were magnificent in m and just the other night i saw your new picture the man who knew too much what character are you going to play in oh it's the most unusual story. You know, it's a great love drama. I am to be a half-mad scientist. I, a poor peasant, have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? <laughs> he shall be shut up when it's I who am mad. <laughs> but nobody knows that. Yes, each man kills the thing he loves. And the villain is Dr. Gogol, played by Peter Lorre. Great choice. Yeah, he in this in this film, he is so creepy. Um, essentially, it's about this Dr. Gogol, and he's obsessed with this actress. And the actress has a husband who is a piano player. And one day the husband is on a train. He's, he just happens to be on a train with this murderer named Rollo, Rollo the knife thrower. And the train gets in a crash. And the husband, when he, he he survives the crash, but he's lost his hands. And so uh, this actress who knows the doctor, she takes her husband to the doctor and says, hey, can you reattach his hands? Uh, now, all of a sudden, her husband can't play the piano and he doesn't really know why. And the first glimpse you see of this is somebody comes because they're obviously running short on on money and they can't pay the bills. And this guy comes over with a pen and a contract and he takes the pen and he like, whips it like a throwing knife and all of a sudden we realize things are amiss and there's murders and there's uh, intrigue but all the while dr gogol peter Lorre does this amazing just he's the creepiest that he can ever be in this film as dr gogol and every second he's on screen it just makes you cringe because he's so he's just so weird and out there yeah it's such a great film i feel like it definitely doesn't get enough praise and I mean, you know, the fact Peter Lorre, I mean, completely shaved his head for this role. It's just, you know, it really shows like how ahead of his time he was as far as an actor goes to get, you know, that crazy into character. 
And this is kind of a theme throughout my list. This was not well received when it came out. Uh, and then it's kind of become more of a cult classic over time. And it's got a couple of good physical media releases now. You should definitely check this out. It's kind of one of the originators of the maniacal doctor that you see in movies and cartoons throughout history. And uh, yeah, Laurie did an awesome job here. That was my number four, Mad Love, 1935. Number three, I'm going to have to go with Henry Jared from 1953's House of Wax, played by Vincent Price. House of Wax and not the uh, not the Paris Hilton version. No, even I do actually like that version. I, I saw that version before. I didn't even know this one existed. I happened to be in Barnes & Noble and saw House of Wax, Vincent Price, DVD, and I'm like, huh. That's bought. So <laughs> I bought it. And it's just, it, it's crazy because they're two completely different films. But uh, for those who are not familiar with the 1953 version, which is the superior version, but uh, uh, Vincent Price's character, Henry Jared, has a uh, wax museum and he makes beautiful wax figures. He has like a Lincoln assassination. He has uh, Marie Antoinette and uh, Joan of Arc, all kinds of classic characters. And he has a partner who uh, wants him to create a chamber of horrors, which Vincent Price is completely against. And there's an investor that's coming by to possibly buy his wax museum. But this is this takes place in like the early this is supposed to take place in the early 1900s. And uh, the guy who comes to look at the place is very impressed. But right at the moment, he's going on an excavation in uh, Egypt. So he's going to be gone. Well, Vincent Price's business partner is hiding in the wings while he's giving a tour to this guy one night and says, hey, we should just set this place on fire and we'll split the, the money. Vincent Price's character doesn't want that to happen. And a fight ensues. Vincent Price gets knocked out and he lights the, the his business partner lights the whole wax museum on fire and an explosion happens. And you you're wondering if Vincent Price was able to get out or not, which later on is revealed that. He did survive and he's starting a new wax museum, but there's also a series of murders that have been taking place. And Vincent Price is confined to a wheelchair. His hands are badly burned. And one of his new exhibits in his wax museum is as heinous crimes happen in real time, they take the photographs from the newspaper and they create these wax mannequins of the actual crimes that have been committed. And Charles Bronson's actually in this film, plays Vincent Price's assistant, Igor, in it. And it is a fabulous film. I don't want to spoil anything because when I saw it, I was blown away by it. I couldn't, I, I had no idea the ending it was going to have. So if you haven't seen House of Wax 1953, highly recommend. Uh, I think it originally came out in 3D as well. So some like oh, really yeah. cool shots. Yeah, I, I would love to see it in 3D. The versions that they have out right now, I think Warner Brothers is the ones that, one that released this film, but I wish they did have an option where you could get the 3D glasses because that would be so awesome, especially the guy that's out front with the uh, the ping pong ball on the paddle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can tell watching it, there's a lot of stuff that was made just to show off the 3D craze for the 50s. Yes, for sure. All right, my number three... We're going to go with a hand, and I can't say whose hand it is because I don't want to spoil this movie. It's from 1946, a little movie called The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh. 
piano long silent mysteriously plays again. Its weird and ominous chords filling a bedeviled house with stark terror. A concerto of death. Macabre music of a dead man. Played by a hand that returned from the grave to wreak vengeance on his betrayers. Marking each for murder as it strikes with inhuman power. A horrifying monster that takes its evil commands from beyond that cannot return to the tomb till it completes its mission of destruction. Hillary, listen, listen. Can you hear it? The piano, it's the hand playing, it's the hand. You were right all the time, it was Ingram's hand that committed murder. I found fingerprints of identical pattern in the library, in the hall, even on the window pane in your room, Signorino. You mean the same hand? I heard what they said in the garden. I couldn't help it. It's a lie. You're lying. I'm not a liar. But you, you are a coward. You don't want to hear the truth. Let's get away from here, Bruce. We're not under arrest. What can they do if we just disappear? It's been a while since I've seen this one. Yeah, this is another Peter Lorre movie. So, um, again, it's tough to talk about it without spoiling things. So I'll just kind of introduce how this hand comes up. So you've got this character, another piano player. His name is Francis Ingram. And... He is heir to this huge fortune. He has a stroke and he can't move his right side. So his close friends and family, he's got like four or five people that are close to him and they'll come and visit him. And then one day he falls and he dies. And we don't know if he was pushed or if he fell, but he dies. And then people who should be or could be involved in the will come to the estate. It's it's almost when I watched uh, Knives Out, it kind of reminded me of The Beast with Five Fingers until this hand started coming out. So all of a sudden, um, strange murders start happening, strange things start happening in this estate. And we realize that the left hand from Mr. Ingram has been removed from the corpse, or did it remove itself? Um, And it starts wreaking havoc throughout this estate. Um, And it starts doing things like playing the piano and playing with fire. And then all of a sudden it starts, you know, murdering people. Number one, it is a cool ending. Um, number two, the hand effects are really, really well done. And then I think the story, the mystery of, is it being controlled from beyond the grave or is this a ruse in order to get the inheritance is really well done in this film. Uh, but I, I think I was most impressed by how the hand looked. It doesn't look cheap and it actually looks pretty real, like like um, way better than something that you'd see in the Adams family at that around that time it's it's really it's really well done so that's the beast with five fingers from 1946 and the villain is the hand and obviously i can't say more than that but go seek it out it's it's a fun time number two uh this was a tough one uh there was there were several that i could have probably picked as my number two spot but uh, i wanted to try to change the list up and have a different actor for each number but uh i'd have to go with Hans, and I think it's pronounced Beckett or Burkett uh, from M, 1931, Peter Lorre. I actually saw this film for the first time this year. It has been on my list. And like I said, I've been doing a deep dive trying to knock out different films, especially I've been on a Peter Lorre kick. And uh, M is like so well done, the, the, uh, the camera work. And uh, I, I was reading up on it and the whistle that Peter Lorre character does in the film uh, Peter Lorre could not whistle, so Fritz Lang had to actually do the uh, the whistle. But uh, hmm. it's about a uh, basically there's uh, all these children that are going, starting to go missing, 
and uh, the police are really cracking down on the uh, the criminals, criminal underworld uh, that's happening. This film was also filmed in Germany, so it's all subtitled. So the criminals are tired are tired of being cracked down and it's hurting their business. So they decide to uh, try to hunt down this killer themselves. And it's just such an interesting concept and a fascinating story. And you can't go wrong with Peter Lorre. I mean, you know, like probably my favorite Peter Lorre line is from uh, Stranger on the Third Floor. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but, he, you know, his I mean, his voice is so imitated, but he's like, I'll take a couple of hamburgers and make them raw. Like, I mean, <laughs> just like, you know, how he conveys himself as an actor is just brilliant. But uh, but yeah, Peter Lorre in that is my uh, number two choice. This is one that Criterion Collection, I believe, put out an awesome disc of. So if you have the Criterion Network or um, just want to get some cool physical media into your collection, you can find M through them as well. Yeah, it's such it's such a great film. And I really and that's the saddest part about Peter Lorre. He is so imitated in either looks or voice. There's actually a guy that has a book out. It's called The Animated Peter Lorre. And in the book, he lists every cartoon or any animation that references either Peter Lorre's voice or look. And, but people don't know his name. And it's such a sad deal because, I mean, he is such an amazing actor and underrated actor. And it's just, you know, I mean, you, you can't, you can't be, you know, when you see his stuff, you're just blown away by like how much of an amazing actor he truly is. Yeah. And if you've never seen a Peter Lorre film, now you have at least three that we've talked about today that you can go and seek out. Yes, indeed. Uh, so my number two, we're going to go to 1942, and this is the first female on our list. This is Irina Dubrovna, played by Simone Simon in 1942's Cat People. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat people, women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Bell. Just a minute ago, it was open. Fuck. Leave us, Irena. Cat People is a really interesting film. It's about a woman who turns into a deadly panther when she's aroused. And she says this is because her ancestors were, uh, they, they were Christians that were living in this village and then they were enslaved. And while they were enslaved, they practiced witchcraft and uh, these other otherworldly spells. And now their descendants of these folks are, they, they turn into panthers. She's got this broken marriage. She she marries this person who doesn't really know much about her, and uh, she's too afraid to consummate the marriage. So it's a marriage on the rocks, and her husband starts falling in love with his assistant, and so Irina starts following the assistant and terrorizing her, and starts just turning into this panther at inopportune times. And obviously, the effects 
you know, in 1942, were not what they are now. So they do a lot of shadow play, which is, it, it looks really cool. And the way that they disguise the fact that they couldn't turn this woman into a panther is really well done. It's also a, a really great observation of like human sexuality and how females might think about that. Uh, that's the, the villain Irina Dubrovna from Cat People from 1942. On to number one. Well, this may not come as a surprise, but number one for me is Eric, Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney, 1925. And uh, the reason I picked this is because Lon Chaney, like I said, is my all-time favorite actor. I feel like film was just, you know, it was in the silent era. It was still in its infancy as far as being, you know, widespread for audiences to see. And this character that he portrays uh, is just, you know, fantastic from, you know, the makeup effects that he does just to the, you know, his just overall presence in the film. It's just amazing. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Phantom of the Opera, uh, it's basically about an opera house that has just been sold to a new management group. And uh, there's a, a female a singer named Christine that uh, the Phantom Lon Chaney is obsessed with and thinks that she should be the number one singer at the show, and uh, which she's not. And he sends threats and he does seeks. I mean, he he wreaks mayhem all over the opera house, killing people, dropping chandeliers. It's just complete mayhem. And I feel like what he did in that film really shaped horror for the, for the rest. I mean, all the way till now, I mean, his influence is seen everywhere. And I mean, he's mentioned, you know, in songs and TV shows and movies, there's all kinds of references to Lon Chaney and his name is like, you know, it, it's crazy to think that something made in 1925 still has that much of an impact almost a hundred years later. If you haven't seen it, you at least know what he looked like with the mask on and behind the mask. It's kind of one of those iconic horror faces. Yeah, and that unmasking sequence is just, you know, one of the, you know, people, they, you know, they've written about people running out of the theater whenever they, they revealed his face because all the promotional material for that film, his face was blurred and they had like blotted out images of what Lon Chaney was going to look like. So people had no clue what he was going to look like until she removed that mask from him. And um, I've been doing a deep dive on this film. I, I got it on Blu-ray and then I found out from actually the angry video game nerd or cinema massacre, I think was his channel is called, but they actually had a 3d version of this film. There's actually two different versions of this film out there. You can see, which is insane for a silent film, but, um, there's a version that's, they call it the 25 version, and there's a version, the 29 version. On the Blu-ray, you can get both versions. So basically, they thought the film was lost, and then they found the film, but it was, um, they thought it was the original. Well, then someone had like a home copy that you could buy at the time, and they're completely different. You can look it up on YouTube and see there's two different unmaskings. And I was completely blown away by this. I had no clue there were two different versions, but people have actually taken the two versions and tried to layer them together and create a 3D version of it, which is, it's very neat to see it in 3D. 
So uh, definitely check that out. But yeah, there are actually two different versions of the film, which is crazy to think because, you know, the, the most sought after lost film is London After Midnight and it does not exist. But Phantom of the Opera has two different versions and it's actually older than London After Midnight, I believe. So it, London After Midnight, I think, had the most the highest price movie poster ever sold. Original movie poster for that film sold for like four hundred eighty thousand dollars. My gosh, I had I had no idea there was two versions. I I had no idea until this year. Uh, the Angry Video Game Nerd did a video about who is the Lantern Man in the uh, the beginning of Phantom of the Opera, and they actually took Phantom and they made a sound version of it. But Cheney was signed to I can't remember if it was Columbia or where he was signed at the time when they were going to do the sound version, and uh, in his contract it said his voice can never be dubbed. So they basically had, they dubbed all the speaking parts. And then whenever they showed the Phantom, they had, they still had the subtitles, the title cards. So it's kind of, and I don't think there's very much that exists of the sound version, which is kind of weird. So if you get like a Blu-ray copy or the 3D version, they have different clips of this stuff that you can, you can see uh, depending on, depending on what version you get, they have different features, but yeah, there are two different versions of Phantom, which is insane. And when I found out, I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. My number one is actually going to exactly why you liked Hostel. It is real life people in horror situations. It's a movie from 1956 called Bigger Than Life. Hello, I'm James Mason. I want to interest you in a new film that we've just finished at 20th Century Fox. Since this was my first assignment as a producer at a major studio, I made sure that the story chosen contained all the ingredients that I like to find when I'm a member of the audience. I want excitement and entertainment in its broadest sense, but I also insist that the human issues involved are of the sort that might reasonably crop up in the everyday lives of all of us. Our story is based on just such an issue. It's about a drug, a drug which Properly used can be a lifesaver, but improperly used can be a life destroyer. Hardly a day goes by without new and shocking revelations in the nation's press about this drug. And now here it is, out in the open at last. A story of a handful of hope that became a fistful of hell. <laughs> One pill, and he felt he could handle anything. One pill, and he felt bigger than life. Miss? Ed, I know you're feeding your oats, but an upper-crust sugar daddy never shouts. This one does. Miss? I beg your pardon? We want to buy some clothes, if it isn't too much trouble. Someone will be with you directly. One moment, please. You see, dear, my wife and I aren't used to places like this, so it's only fair to tell you that if we don't get a whole lot of high-class service, and in a hurry, there's likely to be a terribly embarrassing scene in this sanctum. A theme so vital, a subject so violent, we urge you to bring all your compassion and understanding to it. Our marriage is over. In my mind, I've divorced you. You're not my wife any longer. I'm not your husband any longer. Bigger Than Life is Nicholas Ray's follow-up movie to Rebel Without a Cause. It stars James Mason as this, as the villain. His name's Ed Avery. 
he's a teacher who is trying to support his family. He's moonlighting at night at uh, like a taxi dispatch. And his wife doesn't even know this just to kind of cover the bills. And he's coming home and he's in pain every night as well. He has this rare condition that inflames your arteries. And one night he passes out and he wakes up in the doctor's office and they basically say, look, you're going to die. Um, but we, we have this experimental treatment that just might work. So the doctor gives him this experimental treatment. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's cortisone. I think that they were playing with this uh, real life epidemic with cortisone, but nevertheless, he takes this and he feels like a million bucks all of a sudden. And he starts, you know, he's, he's happy and he's alive and he he keeps taking more and he becomes addicted to it. And now all of a sudden that happiness becomes an inflated ego and he starts having these extreme mood swings and his personality slowly starts changing. And, and obviously it's not for the better. He's got a wife and a kid at home and things start to explode. There's a really great scene at the dinner table where he basically says to his wife, like, you're not really, you're not my wife anymore. In my mind, we're divorced. And this kid's sitting there really awkwardly. And then it starts escalating to violence as well. I'm not going to explain the ending, but it, it gets to the point where there's uh, knives involved. And first off, James Mason as the villain is fantastic. He has an awesome performance. And, and now I think the film might feel a little dated, but his performance is worth watching this alone. And then you've got a young Walter Matthau in there. Uh, so you can see him when he was younger. The film as a whole is a really great take on addiction. It's also a really good take on suburbia, the nuclear family, and then finally teachers and the amount they get paid, I think is another thing that all of us have on our minds. And this movie really tackles this in a great way. Again, this is the villains, Ed Avery played by James Mason. The film is called bigger than life. It's from 1956 really worth checking out, even though it might seem a little dated today. Well, I'm excited to check it out. Cause I love rebel without a cause. It's, I mean, such an amazing film. And uh, now that I know the guy who directed that did this, I'm definitely interested. Are there any films that uh, like narrowly missed your list? Like you wanted to put them on, but just couldn't find. Maybe they were like number six or just missed your list for any reason. Yeah. Uh, Claude Rains is the Invisible Man was on my list for sure. I was debating on where to put put him. And I'm, it was between him and Norman Bates is my number five spot. I would have to definitely say... Uh, you know, Stranger on the Third Floor, you know, Peter Lorre, or, I mean, you know, I mean, you could pick all kinds of different Peter Lorre films. So, yeah, uh, I mean, guy's such a great actor. And then um, I, I also was thinking uh, possibly, you know, the Wolfman is another villain. But at the same time, you know, I, the reason I didn't pick the Wolfman is because it's, you know, he's torn. He doesn't really want to do these things. And and then the same thing with the Frankenstein monster. He's just, you know, misunderstood. So that's why they didn't make my list. So, uh, but yeah, definitely uh, Claude Rains is the invisible man going insane. And then, uh, you know, Stranger on the Third Floor or, you know, a multitude of different, you know, Peter Lorre films. Yeah, I had one that was really close to getting on my list. It's from the 40s. I think it's 1945. It's called The Body Snatcher with... Oh, yeah. um, Boris Karloff's in it, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, I felt bad leaving Lugosi and Karloff off my list, but that one's a tough one to talk about yeah. because almost everybody in the film is a villain and mm-hmm. I didn't want to reveal like who the villains were. So gotcha. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your projects, maybe some projects that you have coming up. Um, what should people be looking for from you? Yeah. Uh, so what I'm known for is uh, unlisted owner. Uh, we actually made the Amazon top 10 for horror DVD in 2017. And then we released it on Blu-ray in uh, 2019 uh, unfortunately, it's not on streaming channels at the moment. We're currently in between distributors. But uh, if you guys are interested in picking up a copy, uh, you can go to makeflix, M-A-K-E-F-L-I-X.com, and you can pick up uh, Unless Owner on DVD or Blu-ray, and they also have signed copies available. Uh, you can also get it on uh, Blu-ray copies on Amazon, of course. Um, then also, uh, I have a short film that I co-wrote with uh, ACM Films out of Los Angeles, California. It just dropped on YouTube. So if you want to check it out, if you type in Lost in the Woods, ACM Films, it will pop up on YouTube. So check that out. And there will also be another couple that I I wrote and co-wrote for ACM Films that will be coming out in the next few weeks. Um, Also, uh, there's a film that will be coming out. It's supposed to be this Christmas. Uh, we'll see with COVID, we kind of had a little bit of a delay on everybody being able to get their stuff shot, but it's a, a horror anthology Christmas style. It's entitled 13 Slaves Till Xmas or Christmas, however you want to pronounce it, but it's spelled X-M-A-S. Um, but it's a, uh, basically it's a horror anthology it has 13 different horror themed ghost stories in it. And uh, one of the stories uh, I wrote and directed involves a killer Christmas clown. So uh, definitely be on the lookout for that. It should be, like I said, it should be out this Christmas. Uh, And then I've acted in a few different projects. Uh, There's a film, it's in post right now. It's called Trick and Treats. Uh, I had a small role in it. It stars Malcolm McDowell. He voices like a talking jack-o'-lantern in it. So uh, I was pretty excited. His character was actually in the same scene as me. So I'm pretty pumped about that. And then, uh, yeah, I I love Malcolm. Clockwork Orange is, you know, one of those classic films and he's such an amazing actor. Um, But, and then also there's a documentary that's supposed to be coming out uh, hopefully within the next year or so it's called scared the documentary. And it also has uh, David Howard Thornton in it. So uh, definitely have some different projects going on. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes peeled for those. Makeflix.com, M-A-K-E-F-L-I-X.com. Go get a Blu-ray and support your filmmakers. Get the signed one. Um, you don't often get to get to see filmmakers live to have them sign your stuff. So go get the signed one there. And then go watch, go watch Lost in the Woods, um, ACM Films on YouTube. It's two minutes long. It's not a, a huge time sink. It looks really good. To me, it's one of those perfect examples of horror where less is more. It's suspense where you don't have to see the full monster to understand the terror behind it, which I thought was really cool. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And then Christmas Christmas horror is one of my favorite horror like, subgenres because it's such a happy time. And you add horror into it, like Black Christmas, for example, uh, one of my favorite horror movies. So I'm really looking forward to uh, 13 Slays Till Xmas. Is that going to be like on, on VOD or streaming or how are, how are people going to be able to get that when it comes out? Has that been decided yet? 
Uh, I'm not sure it's been decided yet. Uh, like I said, uh, the producer on it's PJ Starks. He's known for the uh, the horror anthology volumes of blood. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, but I'll tell you what, there are some amazing filmmakers that are involved in this project. As far as indie horror goes, I mean, you're getting some of the best filmmakers out there that are all involved in this project. I'm so honored and blessed to be a part of it. And then uh, to top everything off, uh, Rocky Gray, who uh, was the uh, drummer from Evanescence and also the band We Are the Fallen, he is actually doing the musical score for the uh, the whole thing. So I'm so pumped about that. That's great. It's been a really fun time having you on. This is a really good warm up for people for Halloween. Like, get scared. Go back to the classics. Get scared. Watch some stuff from the '80s too that we talked about, and then go uh, go check out Jed Bryan's new stuff. He's an upcoming filmmaker, and we got to support these folks. Now, remember, anybody can be a guest on this show. The only requirement is that you love movies. So, if you have a five list that you want to tackle. You can email me directly at force5podcast at gmail.com or head to the website force5podcast.com, which has a show request form and other Force 5 related content. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and watch some horror movies. What I need is a woman who can think and fight and chew gum at the same time. (laughs) Force 5.